They say the first three trading days set the tone for the year. I remember that from reading the Dines letter, and it was one of the many indicators that he would look at, and it was a good one, too. It, apparently, the correlation is quite high. All from memory, folks. Happy New Year. I hope it is a very happy New Year. I've just been boosted about two hours ago, so bear with me. If I sound a little more relaxed than I should, that is merely the mRNA Moderna vaccine going through me. They decided to give me the combo. Started with the Pfizer, now I'm in the Moderna, so let's see how that chemical stew works out for us. Very interesting times. I mean, taking a step back here, it feels like a bit of a muddle through market. What a confusing December that was. I think frustrating, maybe, I don't know if the bears were frustrated, but I think it was frustrating for everybody else who's hoping that the everything bubble just launches right up to heaven. But again, we got a great day yesterday based on that first indicator, and it looks like we're going to have another good day. So again, if we get three green days at the start of the year, I know it's starting to feel like reading tea leaves here, but there is a pretty high correlation on that indicator. Again, I don't know the details on that, but it's one I remember, and so I do pay attention to it. So let's take a look at these numbers. What is the tone that is being set? And I think the big standout for everybody at least from what I can tell, is the 10-year bond at 1.642%. Now, going back in our notes here, if we go back, last week was 1.46. The week before, it was just like a rock around the 1.42 area for about a month, and then it was back up at 1.65. So it's returning to these higher levels. So that is interesting. Bond yields are moving higher So the cost of borrowing money ultimately seems to be getting more expensive here. So one to keep our eye on, again, yields were just going down and down and down for like 30 years, maybe 40, since like 19, I don't know, 81, 82 is when the yields were super high. They've been in a long-term downtrend. And now, will we see that change this year? Who knows? People have been calling the end to the bull market and bonds for a decade now, and they've been losing their shirt on that. So I'm actually not convinced that it is the end. I mean, for what that's worth, gold remains at $1,802.80 per ounce, silver $2,280, no Dr. Copper at $4.38. But good move yesterday on stocks. NASDAQ outperforming the Dow and S&P by two. So the NASDAQ was up 1.2, whereas the Dow Jones and the S&P were only up 0.6. So a bit of a risk-on tech-led rally yesterday. And if we look at the pre-market, everything is up about 0.35% even. So interesting. And finally, let's just look at oil. Oil is at $76.68. I guess that's West Texas. And Brent is at $79.64. So oil prices staying very healthy. And net gas, I mean, I guess it depends where you're buying it. $3.84. I mean, over Christmas, that was one of the big themes. And I didn't bring it up, by the way, was the cost of heating. And here in Germany, often we pay once a year. So it's just going to be a huge surprise for everybody that actually their heating bill is going to be four or five times what it normally is. But I was visiting with uh, my girlfriend's sister's brother-in-law, if we could call him that, and 
He lives in Spain, Mallorca, if you can imagine that. It must be nice. And he was showing me his bills, and they're billed monthly. And his bills went from about 40 euros a month to about 128. Now, I assume there's like a bit of a summer-winter thing going on in there, but nevertheless, pretty dramatic change. And they need air conditioning, I think, out there in Mallorca. So it's not like they're not using power in the summer. So very interesting landscape. And as we said in a previous episode, my sense is that there's nothing the Fed can do. It's almost like the, you know, Steve, remember Stephen Lieb, Red Alert? I actually gave that to my dad for Christmas about 10 years ago, about 10 years too early. Remember Stephen Lieb's Red Alert, where he was calling for resource scarcity? And it was this very alarmist, you know, I'm just going to call it what it is. And he might not disagree with that assessment, but it was a very alarmist take on the natural resource sector and how we're going to start running out of everything. And it seems Dr. Lieb was actually, he may be onto something here, uh, just he was 10 years too early. So now, like, I'm not convinced that you know, the Fed is going to be able to, what is tightening? What is like raising interest rates going to do to create more copper, as we've been saying, or more oil? Like if anything, if money becomes more expensive, doesn't it make it harder to develop stuff? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, folks, just leave a comment in the YouTube or the SoundCloud or the website. So just to finish the thought, what if the Fed's tightening, but inflation keeps going up, right? Or stays high, stays at 4 or 5%, 6%. That'll be a weird situation, right? And I mean, there are a million different scenarios, but that one seems quite plausible, doesn't it? So there's your New Year's sort of, there's my outlook. It's more of a what if. If you remember the Marvel comic from the 70s and brought back in the 90s, you know, what if Spider-Man had married Gwen Stacy? What if that happens. What if inflation remains elevated and the Fed is tightening? Because that seems like, frankly, the most plausible thing. I mean, which probably means it won't happen, but nevertheless. Anyways, so we have a interesting episode here. We have George Salamis from Integra Resources, and he's interviewed by Henry Lazenby before Henry gets frozen out by the internet in South Africa where he was interviewing George from, and Anthony takes over just at the very end there. I think the takeaway on this interview is done at the Global Mining Symposium. The takeaway of this interview, one of the things that we can all take away from it is what is it like to be a junior mining executive? What are the issues you face? And I think specifically, how are you dealing with ESG as a junior? You know, like if you're Rio Tinto, sure, you have to deal with this because you have operations everywhere. You're basically stepping on everyone's toes. So you need to be very you know, concerned with ESG. But what was interesting was the perspective, say, of George Salamis as sort of a, I guess we'd call it a, a junior. I never liked that word for the junior miners to me, but uh, I'd, I prefer explorer. I never liked the word. So you're president of a junior mining company. No, actually, it's an exploration company. I'm big on semantics and words here. And can we start here at this podcast? Well, with me, with the booster, the Moderna vaccine coursing through my veins, can we get rid of the word junior? 
<laughs> anyway, uh, but it was interesting. I, I think uh, we got a great take from George on just how real ESG is for even an exploration company, for an explorer. And uh, again, I, I think there's just a growing consensus that actually the ESG narrative, there's a growing consensus that it makes a lot of sense from the mining perspective. And that it's just like I was saying in last week's episode, it's the new pragmatism, you know, like it's just like it's the new pragmatic approach. You can be the most selfish, self-interested person in the world. Well, you're probably still going to want to have your ESG house in order because it's in your best interest. It's sort of like that. So maybe capitalism is working at the end of the day. Otherwise, we have a new president in Chile. We're going to look at that story and all the latest in metal prices, which are just, I think, just getting increasingly interesting. Let's see if my narrative plays out. Uh, you know, a, a tightening Fed, in theory, semantically, if not in practice. Right now, it's all semantics with elevated commodity prices. Will they come down? Let's see. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. just wanted to take another closer look at this new president-elect in Chile, as Chile is often seen as a bit of a bellwether, I think that's fair to say, in South America and how things are going. And they have just elected a 35-year-old, and this is Trish Saywell, the voice of a new generation in Chile. When Chile's left-wing president-elect Gabriel Boric takes office on March 11th, the 35-year-old will be the youngest president in the country's history, and as the editorial board of the conservative Wall Street Journal noted, will be, quote, the most leftist politician to win in Chile since Salvador Allende in the 1970s, end quote. Boric's 56% to 44% victory over right-wing rival Jose Antonio Cast marks a number of other firsts. The former student activist is the first, quote, to come from outside the centrist political mainstream that has largely ruled Chile since its return to democracy in 1990, end quote, writes Lucinda Elliott of the Financial Times, Quote, and the first to secure a second round victory after losing the first, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, if you look on, I was looking for pictures for the newspaper of Boric. And yeah, I mean, you see pictures of him with a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt. And he looks like just some dude that walked out of a bar uh, before he ran. So nothing against people walking out of bars. He looks like he's just, you know, finished a beer on the couch or something. So... Yeah, definitely a, I think we could call him a non-mainstream politician. I think we're just going to see more and more of this, aren't we? As the internet, you know, and the balkanization of culture continues to happen, I think we're just going to see more and more, shall we say, esoteric candidates. And I'm kind of all for it. Maybe that's exactly what the world needs. I'm not casting judgment on that. Anyways, let's continue reading this. Voter turnout at nearly 56% was also, quote, the highest of any presidential race since voting became voluntary in 2012. And quote. Elliott calculated while the New York Times pointed out that Boric received, quote, the highest number of votes in a presidential contest in the nation's history. So big win for the left in Chile. And... I mean, let's not forget, I think we were looking at a story last week where he was talking about neoliberalism and Trish evokes a quote from the campaign 
quote, if Chile was the cradle of neoliberalism, it will also be its grave. So again, this sort of targeting neoliberalism, uh, which is not very popular in Latin America. So just a kind of a reminder here and just a bit more details on that election. Going around the world to China, Tesla criticized for opening showroom in China's Xinjiang region. And this is by Reuters. Tesla's announcement that it has opened a showroom in Xinjiang has attracted criticism from U.S. rights and trade groups, making it the latest foreign firm caught up in tensions related to the far western Chinese region. Yeah, this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. These multinational corporations wanting to get access to the Chinese market and having to balance that with concerns over human rights. Xinjiang has become a significant point of conflict between Western governments and China in recent years, as UN experts and rights groups estimate more than a million people, mainly Uyghurs and members of Muslim minorities, have been detained in camps there. China has rejected accusations of forced labor or any other abuses there, saying the camps provide vocational training and that companies should respect its policies there. So Elon Musk is getting pressure from both sides. He's opening a Tesla Xinjiang showroom, which the Council on American-Islamic Relations is saying should be closed. And meanwhile, remember that story from last week where SpaceX is getting a tap on the shoulder from the Chinese government saying, what's with your satellites that are coming close? I think, to, was it to their space station or something? It was So he was getting criticism on that. So right now, Tesla is balancing, <laughs> I mean, two superpowers and there's, and you know, you got to laugh. And there's Elon Musk right in the middle of two superpowers. It's kind of hilarious, actually, from one perspective. Tesla did not immediately respond to requests for comment about the concerns over opening the showroom in Xinjiang. The car maker operates a factory in Shanghai and is ramping up production there amid surging sales in China. So, yeah, and then there's all these consumer boycotts. H&M was boycotted in China after it made a statement, and Intel. So what's kind of scary about this is as the trade declines between China and the U.S., that's seen by some as the avenues of peace is trade. And once you dry up all the trade, things get a little bit more confrontational. And, and anyways, moving on to Kyrgyzstan, Sentara Gold confirms talks with Kyrgyzstan for out-of-court settlement over mine dispute. So that's interesting. Sounded like Sentara Gold was just knocking on a door and not getting an answer, but it says here, also Reuters, Candace Sentara Gold on Monday confirmed it was in talks with the Kyrgyzstan government for an out-of-court settlement over a dispute in which a state seized the company's Kumtor mine. So I guess the Kyrgyzstan government has finally gotten back to Sentara. In May 2021, Sentara kicked off arbitration against the former Soviet Republic after it took over the country's biggest mine for allegedly posing danger to human lives or the environment. The company has denied all the allegations. The company also froze the government's stake when it seized the mine, meaning it does not have voting rights nor is it entitled to dividends. Sentara on Monday laid out a framework for any resolution of the dispute, saying it should receive around 26.1% of its common stock held by state-owned Kyrgyzstan JSC. It also said the state should assume all responsibility for the company's two Kyrgyz subsidiaries as well as the Kumtor mine. And we have a quote from Kyrgyzstan President Sadir Zaparov, who said on January 2nd, quote, at present, the parties are finalizing the discussion of an amicable agreement, including, among other things, the condition for the full transfer of the Kumtur Gold Company to the Kyrgyz Republic. 
So not sure what to make of that. Sounds like a lot of smoke and mirrors, frankly. Moving on, Japanese researchers find formula for fast-charging lithium-ion batteries. It's by Valentina Ruiz Leotod. A team of scientists at the Japan Advanced Institute of Science and Technology have developed an approach to anode fabrication that could lead to extremely fast-charging lithium-ion batteries. In a paper published in the Journal of Chemical Communications, the researchers explain that their strategy constitutes a relatively simple, environmentally sound and efficient way to produce a carbon-based anode with very high nitrogen content. So you can read that on mining.com, all the science there, but basically sounds like they made a little breakthrough with the speed of charging lithium-ion batteries. And this is also interesting from Bloomberg. Private equity lines up for coal bonanza left by public miners. Private equity firms are lining up to take on the dirty and highly profitable assets being divested by publicly traded commodity producers as the world grapples to decarbonize. These guys are probably picking up these coal properties for pennies on the dollar because nobody wants anything to do with them because of ESG requirements. So interesting tension there. In the latest example, private equity accounted for most of the 30 so-called Western candidates that signed non-disclosure agreements in the sale of Valley SA's Mozambique coal business. While Indian Steel and Power Group Jindal eventually picked up those assets, the level of interest from private firms underscores the bright outlook for coal mines that have become toxic for listed companies amid the shift towards environmental, social, and governance investing, Siani wrote in a LinkedIn post. So this is an interesting quandary, isn't it? If private companies end up buying all these coal mines that public companies are divesting because of ESG concerns, I mean, it seems to me that there's even less oversight with private companies and it could actually end up far worse in terms of pollution and whatever else associated with these coal mines. So one of those unintended consequences you wonder, like, what I would guess is going to happen next is the governments are going to start to regulate these coal mines a little more, and you're not going to be able to do as much with them, it'd be my guess. And here we go. Our next story, Reuters, Indonesia miners seek a solution as coal export ban rattles global sector. So let's see what's going on here. Indonesian coal miners are seeking a quick resolution to a government coal export ban that is already causing fuel prices to rise and could disrupt the energy needs of some of the world's biggest economies. And isn't this interesting? The world's biggest exporter of thermal coal on Saturday, and this was written on January 3rd, on Saturday banned the shipments because of concerns it could not meet its own power demand. But the prohibition risks undermining the energy needs of global economic linchpins China, India, Japan, and South Korea, which together received 73% of Indonesian coal exports in 2021, according to ship tracking data from Kepler. Though key coal trading hubs such as Australia are closed on Monday, prices for coal to India's west coast have already climbed by as much as 500 rupees, $6.73 per ton, since the ban was announced, said Ria VS, a business analyst at iEnergy Natural Resources Limited. So the screw's tightening a little bit in the coal market. And finally, Ucor, Innovation Metals Rare Earths Processing Plant, is expected in the first quarter of 2022, as by Mining.com staff. Canada's Ucor Rare Metals and its subsidiary Innovation Metals announced that in the first quarter of 2022, we'll see the commissioning of the Rapid SX Demonstration Scale Plant, where the processes of separation and purification of rare earth elements will take place. The plant is located in Kingston, Ontario. 
According to the companies, once a comprehensive independent techno-economic study and the subsequent design of a commercial-scale REE separation facility is carried out, their rapid SX technology will be ready for commercial adoption and implementation in UCOR's Alaska Strategic Metals Complex. This is expected to take place in the second quarter of 2022, with a revenue-producing licensing model being rolled out by the end of the year. So the rare earths problem looks like it's beginning to be solved in the West with some pretty advanced technology. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on January 4th, gold is trading at $1,803.90 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.82 per ounce. That is $0.41 cents lower then last week, platinum is trading at $965.99 per ounce. That is $18 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,865 per ounce. That is $120 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading two cents higher at $4.40 per pound. Aluminum is trading at $1.27 per pound. That is two cents lower than last week. Lead is trading a penny higher at $1.06 per pound. Nickel is also trading higher at $9.49 per pound. That is 28 cents higher than last week. Is that an all-time high in the last two and a half years? And it does appear so. So think about that. Nickel at $9.49. Now, what is the Fed going to do about that? Continuing on, Tin is at $17.98 per pound. That is $0.10 lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $31.73 per pound. Zinc is at $1.65 per pound. That is $0.03 higher than last week. And also an all-time high in the last two and a half years that we've been tracking these prices. Isn't that interesting? The previous high was about three months ago at $1.63. So... Pretty interesting. So zooming out, again, just more consternation at the Fed. They have begun jawboning, and it's clearly not having an effect on nickel and zinc. Copper remains pretty healthy at $4.40. Everything's looking very healthy. And one wonders, when you think of inflation, I think of input costs, right? And there's also, of course, wage inflation. But You think of input costs, like that's hard inflation, you might say. Like there's nothing you can do about that other than build a new mine, which I'm not sure is how fast you can do that. So all to say, precious metals, neutral to down, industrial metals, healthy to up. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have George Salamis in conversation with Henry Lazenby of the Northern Miner and Mining.com. George Salamis is president and CEO of Integra Resources, and he has over 30 years of experience in the mining and resource exploration industry, including $2 billion worth of M&A transactions 
and more. So in this interview, it's it's a little technical at the beginning, and then it zooms out a little bit to ESG and the markets at the end. You're going to notice the questioner changes near the end. I edited out where uh, Henry gets frozen on the internet in South Africa. So Anthony takes over and asks about markets. So I hope you enjoy the interview, and I will see you on the other side. introduce our next speaker, George Salamis, the president and CEO of Integra Resources. George brings over 30 years of experience in the mining and resource exploration industry to the table. George has discovered, financed, built, managed, or sold more than five major mineral deposits around the world. Welcome, George. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Henry, thanks, and great to see you again. Thanks for having me today, by the way. This is uh, this is quite an esteemed panel. I don't know what I'm doing here personally, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So Integra Resources has been building exploration and development momentum at its core Delamar and earlier stage Florida Mountain projects, both in Idaho, USA. Let's start this session by asking you to give us an update on key successes and milestones that the team has achieved at both projects through the year to date. Yeah, so I mean, in very short four-year period, we've done a lot on the project and thanks to this great team and, and great you know management group that I work with and, and a phenomenal board, we've achieved a lot. So kind of top of the list, really, Henry, Florida Mountain High Grade, for example, over the last couple of years, we've released what is now a list of over 100 high grade gold and silver intercepts, largely outside of the Florida Mountain resource base. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of growth potential there. We put out some news, for example, a couple of weeks ago in this area of Sullivan Gulch, where we announced these, these really thick uh, zones of gold and silver mineralization, several football fields of thickness is really in an area that really hasn't been included into a current mine plan and will be included into future mine plans, we feel, in future studies. We very recently put out this milestone ESG report for the for the project, for the company, which we're really proud of. There was a lot of great work that went into that. And then last but not least, we've got pending PFS study, which is going to show, we believe, a much larger much more economically robust project than we demonstrated in the, in the PA two years ago, which was already a great starting point. That PA was great. We think we're going to demonstrate an even better project this time around. All right. So let's pick up with the pre-feasibility and progress at Delamar. In keeping with our thematic for today, which really centers about innovation and how to make money cool, how is Integra applying innovative new approaches to extract increased efficiencies at reduced costs? all to improve the sustainability of the future operation. Innovation has always been a core value of the Integra, let's call it group of companies, Integra 1.0, Integra 2.0. It's, it's one of our three main core values. It's something that we demand from the team. Specifically, we always have in both companies. So of late, you know, recently we pitched a few ideas to our engineers and the team that's chaperoning the study with respect to some more sustainable alternatives from a development and operation perspective. And when we pitched these, you know, in the beginning, they, they looked at us like we were nuts. You know, literally, they thought we were crazy in, in suggesting these things. However, through the course of time, when we went through a more study of these alternatives, the engineers and our consultants saw that 
you know, there was tremendous merit to looking at these, you know, not only did they reduce our carbon footprint substantially, but they also increased our margins substantially as well. So they were actually blown away by some of these alternatives. And just to give you a couple of examples of two of them that you'll see in the upcoming study, one of them is the introduction of the railveyor system, which is a, a really cool system. It's something that I saw years ago in operation at a, uh, an Agnico Eagle operation in northern Quebec. It's basically an electric light rail system that's used to haul ore from one place to another. It's used in a couple of mining operations around the world. It's really cheap to operate. And in our case, it's actually going to generate power. We, we're going to be taking I can't call it ore yet, according to the rules and regs, but I can call it mineralization. We'll be taking gold and silver mineralization from one place at a higher altitude down to the mill site at a lower altitude and thereby generating power. So that reduces our demand for power from the, the Idaho grid. It reduces noise. It reduces dust. Obviously, we'll need far fewer trucks as a result of this system. And therefore, you know, the water consumption will be mitigated through the use of this. But most importantly, it really reduces our dependency on diesel. And we all know, you know the impact of that on things like carbon footprints, for example. The second thing that we looked at and you'll see implemented in the upcoming study is the implementation of solar power. This is going to be a significant component of this mining operation. Just how much will be determined in the years to come, but you will see a component of it in the, the upcoming PFS. And it comes at a pretty interesting time because there's a discussion happening in Idaho, in the state of Idaho, to the extent that, you know, they want to, they want to reduce their power demands. They want to make their power grid more green. And how are they going to do that? So we're hitting Idaho at the right time with this idea because Delamar will be a large power consumer at the end of the day. You know, this is a really creative solution that's going to ultimately be a win-win for everybody, for ourselves terms of, you know, being able to sustain ourselves partially through solar power that we generate on site, but for generations to come around the, the mine site, because, you know, once this mine is shut down, this power will continue to be generated and fed back into the grid. So it's a win-win situation for everybody. And then kind of last but not least, we've got a bunch of initiatives on the go in terms of partnerships, uh, pretty important ones, pretty interesting ones. We have one with Trout Unlimited, which is a well-known sort of environmentally focused NGO, and we're partnering with them, looking at rehabilitating trout habitats in the area that have been disturbed by mining activities that go back to the late 1800s. And then our partnership with this great group called Warm Springs, which is yeah, it's fantastic to work with this group. They're based in Boise, and they're kind of like this shadow consulting group, which sits on the sidelines of our main consulting group. And every time there's an initiative to implement development or operation strategy into the PFS, they will jump in where they see an opportunity and say, have you thought about this rail bearer, for example, it can generate power, it can reduce your power demand and your carbon footprint at the same time. And thereby, we're not doing things in a traditional way, but we're doing things in a more sustainable way. And Warm Springs is, is leading the charge on that. It's, they're a really cool group to work with. So as you've alluded to, um, mining has been a key component of the Idaho economy for more than a century. So while work is progressing on finalizing the PFS at Delamar, what else is happening in terms of exploration at both properties? Where is the mineral upside for the company? You know, that's one thing that we've done consistently, we feel, over the past four years. I guess the question is, where isn't the upside on the project? You know, when we acquired these projects from Kinross four years ago, the assumptions that, that we made and everybody 
else made, you know, there was a bunch of disparate gold and silver deposits with no real link to each other. Well, we've done a really phenomenal job led by our exploration team in really unifying these deposits into a really large area. It's 100 square kilometers. It's, it's big. It's a district. And on that basis, we've proven potential in, in a myriad of areas. We've been able to show you know, potential profitability from bulk tonnage open pit mining, uh, which we'll demonstrate in the upcoming PFS. Obviously, there's the high-grade component, which I alluded to earlier at Florida Mountain. If you start to think about what the operation world at Delamar will look like when you start to maybe displace some low-grade feed from the open pits with high-grade from potentially from an underground source at Florida Mountain, you know, that does tremendous things to the project economics in the future. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, Sullivan Gulch, again, I mentioned, you know, football fields of thicknesses of gold and silver mineralization, some of which hasn't been included into a resource model or a mine plan yet, which is a nut we think we're going to be cracking here in the next year. And then there's all those other sort of what I would call sort of more mid-stage projects, Blue Gulch, Rich Gulch, with these huge IP anomalies, War Eagle, Black Sheep, etc. You know, so many targets in this environment. It's, it's, it's a great problem to have in our case. So on the permitting side, where does the Lamar stand at the moment? Uh, and what does the road ahead look like? And perhaps in the same breath, can I ask you, what does the Idaho regulatory environment look like in support of mining? So obviously we have a PFS study to deliver and then uh, next year's all is going to be about delivering the plan of operations. And that's the first major step in permitting. And so that plan of operations is essentially the definition of the box, the area that we we plan to do our mining activity, uh, where we plan to put infrastructure, uh, heap leach pads, mills, tailings, dams, etc. And so a lot of study goes into that. A lot of the material, in fact, that we're putting into this PFS study will feed into that. But that's kind of next year's task. And then there's uh, what's called a completeness review, which is a kind of a back and forth process with both the state and the Bureau of Land Management where their questions are asked, you know, can you do this differently? You know, give us more information on this aspect, et cetera. Because this is an area which is really well known, it was in production up until the year 2000 under the Kinross banner. A lot is known. It's, you know, it, it was in operation fairly recently. So both the BLM and the Idaho permitting authorities view this area as previously disturbed and recently disturbed. And so therefore we feel that, you know, our iterations of permitting while rigorous will be fairly straightforward because a lot is known already. And then from there, we go to the EIS process and then a record of decision. And that's essentially a sort of a three-year time frame starting now, essentially, is kind of what we're looking at going forward. And just comment on the regulatory environment. Uh, is it supportive of mine development at the moment? It is, certainly. You know, in the context of Idaho, we, we're working with a, a really supportive government body that's pro-mining, definitely. I mean, there's a long legacy and a long history of mining, successful mining in the state of Idaho. So, you know, our dealings with them have been great. We've started actually the process of consultation with the Bureau of Land Management. In fact, we started that a year ago, probably about a year earlier than any company of our size would be dealing with simply because so much is known about the project already. And so far, the Bureau of BLM have been great to deal with. Again, you know, it's 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 a process where you have to satisfy both the state and the federal authorities at the same time. And so far, so good. It's a fairly prescriptive process. We know what we need to do. There's little sort of room to deviate from that prescriptive plan. And uh, we it should be fairly straightforward for us. So as a junior, Integra is one of the few in its peer group to have recently released an ESG report. 
please walk us through some of the key points in the report and why do so few of your peers appear to publish such reports? Well, so first off, the notion of sustainability and, and ESG as a whole is something that we all have to do, not just the major mining companies, so, you know, the junior mining companies, the junior developers, which is our kind of space. You know, we have to pay attention to this. I mean, there have been a lot of sins in the past that, you know, our generations have paid for. We have to stop that nonsense. We have to start really paying a lot of more attention to the, the tenants of good ESG practices. And so this report that we put out recently is 60 page report, very exhaustive. A lot of work went into it. A lot of Excel tables, for example, that were tacked onto it, which you can go onto our website and, and see those tables are basically holding us accountable to ESG measures with various metrics, which will measure over time. You don't see this in the junior mining space and they're fairly exhaustive, but it's really something that holds us accountable to improving our ESG standard on the project. For us, you know, getting the entire team involved in this was really important, certainly on the ground in, in Idaho, particularly important because Idahoans' livelihoods are largely tied to the land. People live off the land down there in various means. And so ESG is critically important to them and, and we take it seriously. A bunch of other initiatives that were in that ESG report, for example, our work or affiliation to the hashtag uh, Mining Feeds BC effort. We raised $100,000 for rural food banks in, in British Columbia. We did something similar at the uh, at the ground level in Idaho during the, the pandemic, during the, the crazy days or early days of the pandemic. Other things that were in that report, for example, zero reportable spills uh, over the past year, zero recordable health and safety incidents. Again, this becomes a, a benchmark for us to try to maintain as we go forward. And also for the first time ever, reporting our scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions. And again, this is a baseline for us. We report where we're at uh, in terms of those levels, scope one and scope two, and we try to better ourselves going forward, not make them worse. And so, you know, a first for us, not many juniors do this sort of thing. Okay, well, perhaps as a follow on to that question, how can ESG serve as a catalyst for deal making? Yeah, so ESG is kind of working its way into all aspects of business, not just, you know, good practices on the ground, but it, in deal making in, in in setting the tone for project development. For example, Cormark Securities came out with this great report, which provided a bit of an overview of then and now uh, in terms of drivers of project economics, for example. So, you know, if you looked at what the old trifecta of perfection was for a company, it was really economies of scale, maximized production levels, high RRR, grade and tonnage was king and period. That's all. That's all you really had to do. Now the new trifecta is really how low a carbon uh, footprint can you achieve on site? Really, really important from a development and operation point of view. The strategic importance of what you're producing, and in our case, you know, silver is a big component of what we will be uh, producing. Silver is a big component of the greening of economies around the world. So that's an important factor in the grand scheme. So there's much more scrutiny in terms of project development, build, construct plans, and as they relate to ESG initiatives, lots more scrutiny. You know, the low-hanging fruit, for example, of projects you know around the world, but specifically in Idaho, you know, there's an attention reverting back to Tier One jurisdictions and projects that might have been marginal in the past, um, which we're now returning to at different metal prices, looking at reopening. So, what are the incentives to develop those, and how do they fit within proper ESG practice? That's 
pretty important in the end of the day. I guess another thing on that angle is, you know, how does ESG fit into investment? This is something that we're thinking about a lot these days. How do we broaden the audience of potential investors and accommodate ESG at the same time? That's, you know, these are all really interesting points for us as a company right now. While sticking with ESG, how has the advent of these relatively new investment filters impacted the junior exploration sector's access to capital? Is it helping juniors or hindering them? Well, so take a step back from that that question. I, I think the time will come, if it's not here, it's pretty soon, where we'll start to see a scarcity of capital to develop projects owned by companies that don't have a strong ESG focus, right? The, the, the barriers to finance the development plans will start to become great, especially for those companies without a strong ESG set of tenants and principles to live by. That said, you know, companies of our size, we're not seeing that yet because I believe we don't fit the mold yet of the big ESG rating houses that are out there, for example, that provide those scorecards for how companies perform on an ESG basis. I think there'll be a time, and I think that time is, is very soon, where you'll start to see ESG rating services for companies of even our size. And that means we have to set ourselves up for that event when it comes, because with that also comes the investment dollars that we require to develop our projects. And so we have to start preparing for that. Once that comes, it'll be a game changer. I mean, for example, I mean, if you look at, I'm trying to recall, there was over the course of the last year, there were some statistics that came out that showed, I think by memory of about $50 billion of sustainable development capital has come in, has entered sort of the the realm of investment from a ETF perspective. And that was just in, I think, in the last year. The year before that, it was half that. And the year before that, it was one-tenth that. So there's a growing trend of money that wants to come in to invest in projects needs to be put into responsibly developed projects. And so we have to set ourselves up for that. I don't think anybody's going to have a choice on that end at the end of the day. But we don't look at it as a burden. We look at that as an opportunity. We have the time to set this up properly. It's something that is really meaningful to us and to our children and to the community surrounding our mining operations. So it's kind of a win-win, no-brainer for us. It's, it's a natural path to head down. Uh, George, I'd like to, to turn a little bit over to the markets where we're set. I let off today talking a little bit about how by most metrics, it looks like a historic opportunity to be investing in gold and silver. We know what the criticism was five years ago, you know, maybe typified by John Paulson's comments about gold and precious metal uh, companies not being great stewards of capital, not having that return uh, on equity. Now, a lot of the metrics that we're seeing coming out of the precious metals companies looks incredibly strong. Lots of free cash flow, lots of profitability, maintaining costs, not going crazy with M&As. The big deals seem to be zero premiums. You've been in this industry uh, for a while. Do, is this a historic opportunity? What, what's your read on what's going on right now and why no love from the, uh, from, the, from the markets in general for the precious metal space? Anthony, just to answer that, your last question first, why no love? Simply put, I mean, there have been other sectors of, of investment uh, angles that have generated some spectacular returns. The COVID rebound stocks, for example, have been tremendous hits. So, you know, where are you going to put your money into something that has potential for, you know, a 10x in the short term or something that might tread water until commodities prices take off? Well, I know where I put my money and that's simply put, that's what's happened. Yeah. That market, I believe, has been 
tapped out the the sort of the, the COVID rebound stocks, if you will. I think we're you know due to forces that have come upon us uh, as as a planet in the last you know year or two. Um, you know the narrative of of inflation and even hyperinflation has really started to creep in. Thank God that you know we've gone from having you know bodies like the the Fed and the central banks around the world uh, you know talking about inflation as being transitory. It's nothing that we really need to worry about. To oh no no it's not transitory. It's here to stay. So that's furthering the narrative um, with respect to gold. Gold, as we know, has been you know traditional safe haven in times of inflation and certainly hyperinflation. So, you know, the setup for gold is 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 really good going forward. From an M&A perspective, to your point, there's been a lot of fiscal discipline in and amongst the, the traditional sort of mid-tier major uh, gold producers, uh, tightening their belts, making great margins, making developing their war chests, but they haven't been doing much about reserve and resource replacement themselves. So, you know, I've seen a few of these cycles before, and typically what needs to happen for M&A to kick off is you need these these buyers, these traditional buyers to start feeling better about themselves in terms of their own valuations. Once they feel better about themselves, their shareholders feel better about owning them, they start to gain a license to go out and buy things. And I think we're starting to see that the first signs of that now. Certainly there have been a, you know, a couple of of significant transactions announced in the last, say, six or eight weeks. I think it's kind of just the start here, Anthony. Okay, so you see that accelerating into 2022. Do you think, I mean, what would be the major theme that you'll be looking at you think will drive precious metals market for 2022? Yeah, the major theme, precious metal markets for for gold specifically, it's, you know, it's safety, it's hedge against inflation. For silver, it's going to be uh, greening economy demand of silver, which is a big component of green economies around the world. Those two are going to be significant drivers for sure. Listen, George, really appreciate you taking the time. Really nice to be able to catch up with you. Hopefully Henry's okay. We'll we'll check in on him, make sure that he's all right in South Africa. But it, despite the broken furnace, showing up with the jacket and, uh, you know, dedicating your time and your insights to our platform, much appreciated, George. Appreciate it. Thank you. There you have it, the first edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. Again, I hope you're having a happy new year. I hope you learned something from this episode. And I think it's going to be a very interesting year. Thank you once again for joining us. And if you want to help out the podcast, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, send it to your friends. And until next week, take care.